Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Robert Mueller's most recent indictment details how 13 Russian nationals interfered in our election. We'll consider how the information changes the conversation. In 1988, Iran executed around 4,000 political prisoners. A new documentary talks with survivors of the purge. We'll hear from the filmmaker and connect the dots to the suspicious case of the Iranian environmentalist who just died in a Tehran prison. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. expecting the 13 Russian nationals accused in Robert Mueller's indictment from Friday to appear before a jury soon or maybe ever, but the details in the 37-page indictment focus the mind on the links these people went to to mess with opinion in this country. Evelyn Farkas is a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia and a non-resident senior fellow now at the Atlantic Council who's doing quite a bit of work on this issue. Thanks for joining us, Evelyn Farkas. Oh, well, thanks for having me, Jerome. Well, you know, how Russia's been at this for a while. They were messing around in the Baltics in elections 10 years ago. They're probably messing around in the Italian elections right now. Do we pretty much know what um, what they're doing, what their motivation is? Do they just want to mess with liberal democracy and have found a way to do it in the cheap? Yes. I mean, that's absolutely it. They and, and, of course, the United States is the number one target for them because we are the leader of all of the democracies, the leader of the free world. We are the country that's been able to use our alliances to counter Russia, to stand up to Russia when it does things like invade its neighbors, Georgia and Ukraine in particular, <laughs> or specifically, I should say. Um, you know, Putin is, though, first and foremost, what, afraid of democracy and of the West because he's most afraid that we will try to engineer a regime change in Russia and kick him out. Well, do, what do we do with this information now that we we have it and it's fairly out in the open and people understand it? Do we um, try to, you know, do we make Facebook do something about it? Uh, people are talking about education to recognize bots and things like that. Uh, does the government have to do what, what? What kind of thing do you think is an effective counter to this? Yeah, I mean, it, it has to be a multi-pronged effort. So there's things that government needs to do. Government needs to make sure that Facebook and all the other social media companies that they adhere to campaign finance laws, essentially anything that was paid for, uh, any kind of ad that was paid for by a foreign government would have been illegal. So Facebook and Instagram and all these sites would have said to the Russians, uh, of course, if they knew it was Russian, um, that you cannot uh, get, you cannot run this ad. But any other entity would have had to demonstrate that they were uh, a legal entity paying for this ad. And 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 so there are, there are a lot of regulations in place right now that apply to print and television media. They need to be applied to the internet as well to all the social media. That's 
just one piece of it. Yes, of course, there's also, you mentioned education, civic education. That's kind of a long-term thing. You know, Americans just need to be a little bit smarter about where they get their information and to actively um, read carefully. I do think that some of that means then that that we need to re-educate people about uh, editorial boards and what it means. Newspapers may have a slant, but that doesn't mean that they're giving you fake news. However, there are Internet sites that are deliberately giving you fake news. So, so some of that also will, will mean that it's not just up to regulators. It's, it'll also be up to citizens to, to be better citizens, to be better consumers. Um, there also needs to be, and I guess I kind of indirectly hinted at this with regard to these laws and what the, what the Internet sites did not know, transparency. And so I think across the board – because there's another part of the investigation will have to do with money that came into the campaign, possibly from Russian sources. We don't know this yet. I'm just guessing, looking at some of the dots that are out there that Mueller hasn't connected for us yet. And that means transparency in the laws that we have about financial interactions, financial transactions, especially in the real estate arena. Do governments have to sit down with each other and negotiate some kind of ground rules about this? Because everyone says, well, the, U- the U.S. messes in people's elections, too. And if the we don't want the Russians messing in our elections, do we have to sit down and cut deals with them and, and other countries and just say, well, here's here's the way we should do this? Well, I don't think the U.S. messes in other people's elections. I mean, what Russia did was very directly and covertly get involved in influencing. There were a number of facets of this. So one, what happened with the social media, what these indictments are about, this is covert action to influence the thinking of U.S. citizens, which would then somehow affect their vote. You know, we don't, all the the direct line, we don't know exactly how that works out, but clearly they were trying to influence people to prefer Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. Of course, in the beginning, it was just about muddying the waters and creating a lot of dissension inside the U.S. uh, body politic. But there's then the second piece, which is what they did with taking, hacking into the DNC and to John Podesta's emails, then then providing that to WikiLeaks and to the world. Uh, There's some uh, cases where they may have tampered with some some uh, information that they gained. Certainly that's a possibility moving into the future where they will not just hack into John Podesta's email, but they'll change things in it and then present that as, as true, uh, true emails. So I think the, the answer to your question, it's, you know, there are a lot of things that need to be done um, by, by all, by a lot of different entities. Well, you know, the idea that the U.S. doesn't mess with people's elections, and uh, is that uh, true? Because the U.S. Had, has done things, you know, democracy promotion in Serbia, and uh, there's all sorts of things in the West Bank and Iraq and uh, Iran. I mean, it just goes on and on. Yeah, sorry. And then that was your original question. What, what, I, what I wanted to say there was that so I started with Russia was directly interfering with the hacking, and then we know they probed the electoral mach- machines in several states, and they actually got in. The the officials have told us they don't believe any of the information was tampered with. But the United States, those instances you gave where in the past we've been involved, we've tried to affect other countries' elections, that's been through coaching opposition parties. It's been through... 
and I'm leaving out some of the the worst parts of our past because we are not uh, a country that that ha- that has no sin. You know, we have done things in the past, assassinations, but, et cetera. That but I mean, maybe if we put anymore. that stuff on the table and say we're not going to do this anymore, you're not going to do that we've anymore, all, we cut a deal. We've well, so here's the thing: there is no equivalence between what we do now overseas and what Russia did to us. That's the point I'm trying to make. What we do overseas now is we educate the opposition, we educate media, we try to create a situation where there's a more free election in any country that says they want democracy. And in the countries that are autocratic and they don't want democracy, we just try to help the people who are being oppressed. That's kind of help for human rights reasons. So we do no, we no longer, we've already put on the table, we have a law against assassination. We've already put on the table that we're not going in to conduct regime change. Now, we have done that. Yes, we did it with Iraq because the Bush administration built up a false case that there were weapons of mass destruction and it was kind of an urgent case where we had to go in and remove the remove Saddam Hussein from power because he had this program. I personally disagreed with that. Nevertheless, that was that was a, case, a specific case that was made because under the UN laws, you know, under the UN system that if if a government is is presenting a threat to international peace and security, the Security Council can pass resolutions. In the case of Iraq, they did. And ultimately, the Security Council could effectively give a mandate to the international community to take out a regime. But we have been much more careful about the idea of regime change. We have looked for international cover. We've done it in coalitions. In the, you know, the Russians like to trot out the case of Kosovo. That's a that's a war the Kosovar started. Well, let, let me actually go back. Saddam Hussein, uh, sorry, um, <laughs> another another bad guy. Slobodan Milosevic was oppressing the Albanians in Kosovo. They decided to take up arms, uh, rightly or wrongly. Right. Eventually, the international community came in and said, okay, we need to freeze the situation. The UN sent forces in. And in the long run, the end, what ended up happening was the international community decided, okay, Kosovo, the Kosovo Kosovo could become an independent state, that the Kosovars could have their own state. But that was not something that was decided overnight. And so my, my point is just that what Russia has done with their direct and covert interference in our elections really crosses the line. I wanted to ask a quick question about what's going on right now in Italy. I know the Atlantic Council, where you're at, is has an right. active uh, campaign and has people in Italy looking at what's happening. And uh, Silvio Berlusconi is making a comeback bid in this election. And Facebook is taking out ads in Italian newspapers telling people to flag suspicious activity and, and things of that nature. Uh, is uh, is the thing that is going on in Italy now something that is is like taking the fight to a next level? Yeah. Look, the Ru- first of all, the Russians—they're not going to stop just because you know we've accused them and we we have evidence now that they tampered in our elections. Because until the sanctions are strong enough, until the pain is is insufferable the russians will continue doing what they're doing because they like the results they've gained so far so if they can sway the italian election to get berlusconi back i mean berlusconi was putin's buddy you know they went down to hung out in wine cellars together and you know i mean they you know (laughs) i don't i don't think putin was closer with any other uh european leader actually uh, certainly not western european leader so so you know, they would love it if they could get that end result and it would be worth, you know, whatever sanctions they would get um, in exchange for it, probably they would deem. The, the other thing is that 
they are evolving their tactics. So they're smart. They're not going to constantly reuse exactly the same methods that they used before the Russians. So, but we can expect them to continue meddling until the price is too high. Evelyn Farkas is a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. She's now a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Thanks for joining us and talking about uh, Russia and elections. Thanks very much, Sharon. In 1988, Iran executed around 4,000 political prisoners. Coming up next, I'll talk with the director of a new documentary that talks with survivors of the purge. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Peace on Earth Film Festival starts on Friday, March 9th. I'm emceeing the opening night of the festival. I've done it several times before. It's always great. We're going to get a preview and talk about an opening night documentary in the festival that has a connection with today's news. With me is Nick Angotti, founder of the Peace on Earth Film Festival. Great to see you, Nick. Good seeing you, Jerome. It's always good to be here. Now, your festival bills itself as raising awareness of peace, nonviolence, social justice, and an eco-balanced world. You see films like you don't see anywhere else is the upshot. That's true. We look for great stories. Then we look for films that are palatable for our audience. And we have some fabulous stories this year, uh, not only on uh, sustainability, but about issues happening all around the world. And we're always, always looking for resolution. There's a lot of resolution in our films this year. I noticed there were some really terrific films on Sunday about groups of people who are going to Israel, um, groups of people who are going to retrace Martin Luther King's footsteps in India. There's some cool stuff. Actually, we have two films, one locally through uh, the Peace Exchange, which was filmed by Free Spirit Media Pro, where a group of uh, Chicagoans, young kids from uh, areas of violence, uh, go with the Peace Exchange uh, in different areas of the world. And this year they went to India. And also we have From India with Love, created by uh, Madar Op, and he's brought people from around the country who have experienced violence in uh, different areas of their life, either uh, former gang members or a woman whose son was lost, was shot in uh, Connecticut at the preschool, and they go there also for a great healing, and it's just an amazing film. The Peace on Earth Film Festival, it starts on Friday, March 9th. We're going to talk about a documentary now that is going to take place there on opening night. It's called Secret Fatwa, and the director is Delnaz Abadi, and she is with us now. Thanks for joining us, Delnaz. Thank you for having me. And also with us is Ahmad Sandri, professor of sociology at Lake Forest College, who we talk to uh, frequently on the program. Good to see you, Ahmad. Glad to be here. 
Del Nas, tell us about your film, because it's about an interesting subject that most people probably don't know much about. But it's about a 1988 in Iran, and there is a purge of political prisoners which is uh, almost epic in nature. Around 4,000 people were killed at Evan Prison in 1988. How did you get interested in doing this film? Well, I had a personal connection with the film. The victims of this massacre, um, they were my fellow activists. My friends were among them. I was lucky when the reign of terror Islamic Republic unleashed a reign of terror in the early 80s, I was lucky I fled. But many didn't. They ended up in prison. They were interrogated, tortured, some quickly executed, and the rest got prison terms. After three, four years of executions, there was a lull and a sigh of relief. But then in 1988, these prisoners who were serving their sentences, they were murdered en masse. Prisons were put under lockdown. About 4,000 were murdered in the matter of months. Ahmad Sadri, as a professor of sociology, uh, what outcome was there of this? Because it seems like the regime really got away with this. They ended up killing their political prisoners and all the people in charge... Uh, went on to have fine careers. It is a tragedy, as Delnaz was saying, that started in 1981 with killing of anybody that they got their hands on who was somehow connected to the MEK, to the Mujahideen organization. In 81, the Mujahideen had gone underground and declared war on the Islamic Republic, and they were enormously successful in assassinating and blowing up places where their regime leaders were gathering. And they were successful because actually this group and the group that took over in Iran, they were close brothers. It was basically a form of fratricide. Before the revolution, I knew many people that after the revolution, some of whom, and this is my personal circle of friends, some of whom ended up on the side of the government and some on the side of the uh, MEK. And the ones on the side of the MEK, anybody that the government got their hands on, they summarily executed. And by this time, when the MEK went on their ground, a lot of their followers, ordinary people who just liked this organization or would read their newspapers or were caught with a couple of pamphlets, they were hauled to the Evin prison and in revenge for the killings that had occurred, in revenge they killed these people. They couldn't get their hands on the actual perpetrators. So a lot of young, ordinary people died. I have two friends, one of whom lost an 18-year-old niece. The other one lost her two brothers in 81 to these summary executions. And these are, again, not hardcore members, not terrorists, uh, you know, armed, these ordinary people. Subsequently, I felt so horrified that I felt that I had to write a play. I wrote a play about my best friend's niece. This is a girl that I had known since she was a baby. And she was arrested. And one day, her father was reading the newspaper and saw her name in the list of those executed. Hmm. And as Delnaz was saying, it kind of died down 
because there was nobody else to catch and kill. And these people were, they all received, you know, sentences. By this time, the Iran-Iraq war had started. And towards the end of the Iran-Iraq war, the leader of the Mujahideen organization who had gone to Iraq, he launched, as is said in the film, he launched an attack on Iran backed by the forces of the Saddam Hussein's government. And uh, it was a fiasco. Everybody who was involved got massacred by the Iranian army who had basically uh, reached a stalemate with Iraq but was powerful enough to crush these. And then the government used this occasion in order to go back to the prisons and liquidate. I think the exact term for this is politicide. It's not unlike what happened in Indonesia, where the government killed half a million uh, leftists. In this case, about three to 4,500 MEK people and also some leftist people were retried in minutes and executed. May I add something? You asked about the perpetrators getting away with this crime. So I wanted to add that the perpetrators not only got away with this crime, they were promoted. They still hold very important positions in the government. For example, the intelligence officer in the death committee, who was actually the most cruel member of the committee, he wanted to kill as many as he could. He became the justice minister under the presidency of Mr. Rouhani. Can you believe it? Justice minister, a person who we want to take to court for crimes against humanity. And then recently, Mr. Rouhani changed the minister of justice. Who did he appoint? Another criminal who not only had a part in the 1988 killings, not in Tehran, but in Desful, but also is banned to enter Europe because of his role in the arrests and human rights abuses of the uprising in 2009. So, yes, not only they got away with this murder, they got promoted and they are still in power. You know, I did interview uh, Hushang Asadi a few years ago. He did the Letters to My Torturer book, and he talked about his torture, seeing his picture in the newspaper and, you know, being dumbstruck that his torture was now the ambassador to where, Pakistan or something. He got a promotion after that. The guy who was torturing him nearly to death was doing great. It was good for the career. We're talking about the film The Secret Fatwa with Delnaz Abadi and Ahmed Sadri, professor of Lake Forest College. It's one of the opening night films at the Peace on Earth Film Festival. And, you know, your film ends up being very personal, much like Ahmed's experience with writing a play. And you've made this film because you know all these people and got to know more of them. The film is essentially testimonies of family members and people who survived. How did you end up finding them and talking with them? Because of my background, I was already in touch, so I left Iran. I felt obligated to help those who couldn't leave or those who were released from prison, and I helped them, you know, get to other countries and publish their memoirs. But for me, the 1988 massacre 
had a special significance. It was not the first atrocity that the Islamic regime had committed, not the last, but it was very significant because it showed the nature of the system. You know, they have committed crimes and they have attributed to rogue elements. This one was so clearly the order of the supreme leader. It shows how the system allows this kind of atrocity to happen in a legal way. So those who wanted the prisoners to be liquidated, they simply went to the supreme leader and asked for a fatwa. That was all they had to do. The fatwa rendered null and void all other previous judgments. And then these prisoners were taken one by one in front of a death committee, three members that Khomeini had appointed, and asked a few questions. The very disturbing thing in this process is the prisoners were not told, your life depends on these answers. They were not told, you are being retried. They were told lies. They were told, we want to change your ward. Imagine, it was an inquisition where the accused doesn't know that if they give the wrong answer, they're going to die, die immediately, taken to the gallows. So this medieval inquisition It was very important to me that this aspect of this unique crime be documented. It seems like the people who are survivors of this experience in 1988 in the prison there in Tehran, they were the ones that got wind of what was happening and its importance and lied and said, I am devout, you know, I've changed my mind about everything. And they told people what they wanted to hear. That is right. So when they started the massacre, they wanted to make sure that nobody finds out. That's why they canceled the visits. They shut down the televisions, radios. They didn't want any information to be communicated about the massacre. Also, they made sure that the prisoners wouldn't see each other. So they canceled going to the infirmary, internal visits. But prisoners care for each other. So using Morse code and you know, very creative means of communication, they passed on the news. And one chilling episode that I heard was one of the people I interviewed. He said... I was telling my other prisoners that they are killing and nobody would believe me. They said, it's unbelievable. That's how shocked they were. Dilna Zabadi is the director of the film The Secret Fatwa. It's one of the opening night films on March 9th at the Peace on Earth Film Festival coming up. We'll be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about the film The Secret Fatwa. It's in the opening night of the Peace on Earth Film Festival. The director is Delnaz Abadi, and she is with us now. And Ahmed Sadri, professor of Lake Forest College, and we're talking about what happened in 1988 in Iran when 4,000 political prisoners were executed in a massacre at Evan Prison. How do we make sense of this today, Ahmad? We see an evolving situation where there's been a lot of political prisoners over the years. You yourself in 2014 were arrested on your way back to Chicago after a stay in Iran and spent a couple months in Evan Prison. And your friend, who was a Canadian national and was arrested about a month ago, his name was Kava Sayad Amami. And he was recently said to have committed suicide in Evan Prison. And this has become a a notorious case. Uh, You've been doing interviews on the BBC about this and the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation as well. Is there a through line here between the way the regime operates with political prisoners from 1988 to today? So many lines to follow in what you have said. I think the judiciary system in Iran is very closely patterned after the Soviet Stalinist system. For instance, the pressuring of the prisoners to show up to short trials. I was under that pressure, and um, other people have been under that pressure to come on a TV program and you know, bear witness against themselves. Doesn't it seem like a good idea to go along and go on the TV show? I mean, all the people who survive this situation are the people who essentially say what they're supposed to say. Well, again, under those conditions, nobody can predict how they are going to act. I mean, I had fantasized about being in prison, and I had a thousand different scenarios of how I was going to act. But actually, once you're there... Something else kind of takes over. So when I was confronted with the prospect of going on these programs and confessing and then being able to leave, something in me just rebelled. I said, no way. And I said, you know, I'm willing to go to prison for six years, which was my charge, the two charges that I had, but I will not go on TV. And actually, my interrogator smiled and said, you know, many people who go into those kinds of sentences, they don't come out the other way. And I laughed and said, uh, that would be fine because I always wanted to die in Iran and you're doing me a favor and I'm an obscure professor. You're making me a hero. And I always wanted to be buried in my own country. So I dare you, just put me in prison. Again, I would have never thought that I would react that way. But, you know, in those situations, I totally understand the people who went in there. I'm firmly convinced many of the people who actually didn't repent and didn't use the right word to be released, many of them did it willingly. They would have done it even if they have known that they are going to die. And actually, my friend's niece was given that choice, an 18-year-old girl, and she refused, and she chose a heroic death. There is no habeas corpus in Iran. There is no right to a lawyer in Iran. Once you are through those gates of Evin prison, you could never appear. You could be disappeared. You don't have a right to lawyer. You don't have a right to visitation. And every time I went for my interrogations, I was released on bail, and then I would be called to go for interrogations. Every time I went in, my wife would stand outside the prison waiting for me to come out. And every time 
she fully expected that I would never come out. So under those conditions, enormous pressures could be brought on people to, quote unquote, cooperate, that is, become spies for them, or to appear on show trials. Both of those suggestions were made, and I refused both of those. But I totally understand somebody who would not and, and would want to save themselves. People should not be put under those conditions. And actually, in Iran, when somebody is arrested, all their friends say, go ahead, say whatever you want to be released. Nobody is going to believe it anyway. Dilnaz, do you have some thoughts about what is happening today in the kind of through pattern that this 1988 massacre is until today? I mean, we see this Canadian-Iranian man, uh, an environmentalist, get probably executed somehow. They say he committed suicide. But I imagine you heard that news and just thought it still goes on. Well, I both see similarities and differences. What's similar is the enormous pack of lies you know, one lie after the other. It would have been very simple if someone has committed suicide. An independent autopsy is enough to show that they have committed suicide. But no, they just produce lies, lies. That's what they did with the 1988 massacre. They lied to the families or they threatened them just like they have threatened the wife of Mr. Imami, they told her, come for a visit. Then they interrogated her, intimidated her, threatened her, and gave her the news that her husband has died and it was suicide. I mean, the pattern is the same. The charge is always they are spies. The charge is espionage. The same for Mr. Imami, he was a compassionate environmentalist, a sociology professor. His charge, it's not an official charge yet. Maybe there will never be an official charge. Is that he was under the disguise of research. He was collecting information, classified information for USA and Israel. So that's the similarity. The difference is during the imprisonments of the 80s, we were talking about tens of thousands, tens of thousands of arrests and executions. There were no names. They were nameless. Nobody dared to raise a voice. Nobody dared to fight for them except for their families. Now, when Mr. Imami was arrested, the news was all over the world, thanks both to social media and to the activities of human rights activists, to the NGOs who report what happens in Iran quickly, and then international human rights group pick it up and follow up. So the international pressure on social media, I think, have created a new situation. I'm talking with Delna Zabadi, the director of the film The Secret Fatwa. It's one of the opening night films at the Peace on Earth Film Festival. And Ahmed Sadri, professor of sociology at Lake Forest College. And we're discussing criminal justice in Iran, I guess. Ahmad, the things we hear about a kind of arrest and detention of people in Iran these days, it seems like there's a lot of pressure 
the government wants to bring to bear on different political factions within Iran. The conservatives want to hurt the reformers and things like that. And this seemed to have something to do with your detention and your former colleagues' detention and death in prison. It also seems kind of involved in that. I don't think most people think, well, what could an environmentalist be doing? But in the New York Times, I read about dams in Iran that are deeply connected to the Revolutionary Guard, development projects that they want to put out, and environmentalists stand in the way of these things. Is there a underlying motivation of people in the Revolutionary Guard and conservatives to kind of angle things these days, and this is part of what's going on? See, I wish these were legitimate counter-espionage operations because every country needs counter-espionage. Espionage is a real issue. Iranian nuclear scientists were assassinated by Israelis. These things actually happened. But these arrests, these kinds of extrajudicial activities, as you just said, it is part of a theater. It is the conservative forces the Revolutionary Guards that have their own intelligence, they are trying to wage a war against the reformers such as the government of Rouhani, and they did the same thing under the government of Khatami. And the idea is that they want to create scenarios, a scenario of espionage, and then they want to connect it to the reformers, and then they want to kind of create a lot of media buzz. It is basically all about creating spectacles. In the meanwhile, people who are the objects of these scenarios, to them, they don't exist. I mean, we are pawns in their chess game. So the charges against my friend, uh, the friend with whom I used to go hiking in the mountains of north of Tehran, you couldn't imagine a more humanitarian, caring, scholarly person. He was not nearly as political as I was. The charges are so ridiculous. You know, these environmentalists, they are gathering lizards and the skin of the lizards are able to absorb radioactivity. And this is how they are trying to gather information on Iran's nuclear program. You know, Iran's nuclear program is under 24-7 monitoring by the international agencies. They don't need to gather lizards for this or to report on Iran's uh, water tables, something that you can find on Google within a matter of seconds. The charges are ridiculous, but the way they look at it is how they can create a TV program for internal consumption and create a buzz in order to fight against their internal enemies. So they are sacrificing Iran's security by playing these games. So it is extremely unfortunate that they use the judiciary and the intelligence agencies in order to wage political wars against their internal enemies. Delnas, what do you want to see happen with the film? Where do you want it to go? Who do you want to see it? What kind of impact do you want the secret fatwa to have? So one of the reasons, motivations that I made the film was to help the survivors and family members seek justice. No one has been held accountable for this crime. No one has assumed responsibility Families to this day, they don't know where the bodies are buried. They are not allowed to mourn in public. 
They want their loved one's last will. They want to know why. And it is impossible that they can get justice, in my opinion, in Iran. The highest official, the supreme leader, had ordered this massacre. Even the reformists in Iran, they do not make a clear statement condemning this crime. They either claim that they didn't know at the time. They do not state that this was a crime against humanity. And I think the film for internal consumption is a litmus test. So people who are now involved in bringing change to Iran, what kind of change they want to bring? Would that change allow this kind of crime against humanity to happen again? And then at the international level, you know, United Nations knew about this massacre at the time. The families have sent reports. They have met in person with the special representatives, human rights special representatives, and given him hundreds of pieces of evidence. And a year after the massacre, the representative is invited to Iran. Isn't that amazing? They have cleaned the prisons, liquidated the prisoners, then they let the human rights representative to come to Iran. They take him to Evin prison. He talks to authorities, but he doesn't ask one question about the massacre. He shakes hands with the murderers and asks no questions. So what does that mean? They gave the murderers impunity. And what does that mean? That means they will keep committing these crimes, which they did both inside Iran and outside. So I hope that my film would help human rights activists and families and survivors who are now working hard to gather evidence and take the case to an international tribunal, like the one that the Security Council set up for Rwanda, for Sierra Leone, for Lebanon, And even if the defendants do not appear in the court, because their crime is a crime against humanity, they can be prosecuted in absentia. So I hope my film can help bring about international justice for the family members, victims, and survivors of this massacre. What I wanted to add to the points made by Delnaz is she shows in the movie the exception to the rule, that is, one man, Ayatollah Montazeri, the heir apparent to Ayatollah Khomeini, courageously put everything aside, put his own future as the supreme leader of the Islamic Republic aside. He was slated to be the next Khomeini because he wanted to speak the truth on this massacre. He did. He was sacked. And he spent the rest of his life on virtual house arrest, sometimes on literal house arrest. And also, the 20th century witnessed more people killed by their own government than in the wars that occurred between nations. We had First World War. We had Second World War. We had all these other wars that occurred in 20th century. More people were killed by their own governments, by massacres in places like Soviet Union and China in democides and politicides than in the wars. So the numbers are staggering. 
in the Iranian revolution, the numbers fortunately don't rise to that level. Some Baha'is were killed, about 230 Baha'i leaders were killed in the beginning of the revolution, about 4,000 uh, in this. Uh, but sadly, these pale in comparison to millions of people who were killed in the 20th century by their own government. I'm not even counting, you know, inter-ethnic warfare and conflicts such as Rwanda and things like that. So 20th century was a very sad century, and I hope that the 21st century will be better. And this film festival, I hope that occasions like this will bring awareness to world citizens that we have to stand up to these kinds of abuse of government power. <laughs> and unfortunately, we only had one Montaziri. That was all. <laughs> nobody, nobody else has emerged to question the government. And all the reformists today, when Montaziri was risking his life, his career to tell the truth, they all condemned him, either condemned him or moved away from him. No. And then, as we can hear in your voice, the sadness, I can tell you that actually when I wrote that play, it was because I was, it was about 10 years after this that had happened, and I was in Greece, and I had a dream, and my friend's niece came in dream and commanded me to write her story. Wow. And when I wrote this story, it was such a release. I really felt that I had given voice to this girl who had never been able to speak to anybody. And so I can empathize with the way in which you feel having made this movie. It makes you sad, but also it's a moment of catharsis and it's a moment of release because you finally can give voice to this huge, silent disaster that befell these people waiting in prison for their prison terms to end and then were so cruelly murdered. Thank you. You really summarized my psyche very well. <laughs> I think I managed to change my grief and anger Indeed. into empowerment and see what we can do for the next generation so this doesn't happen again. And that's the attitude of families and survivors also, I believe. We are very lucky that we have people like Nick who create occasions like this. So these moments of humanity that are buried and basically are neglected, they can be brought out and replayed again and we can gain some light and some insight and at least some release from these expressive moments that art creates. And thank you, Nick, for doing this. Yes, well, thank I, you. And thank just you, I want to just add one thing about opening night. We've got the secret fatwa, which is talking about regimes and how horrible it is. But it always begins with an individual. Then we've got Circle Up, a woman who lost her son to violence, who goes to the person who killed her son mm -hmm. to make amends and then begins to create circles. Circle training with other mothers who lost their son and begin to bring in gang members to heal. Then we have the perceptions from prison to purpose and Noah Schultz, the center of the film, he went to prison for seven years for attempted murder, and he was a gang leader and a drug leader. And during that period of time, he transformed his life, and he came out to graduate college. He came out to be a TED spokesman, 
And now he's going into prisons and working in high schools to help individuals. And he'll be there as well. Without the films, there is no festival. And unfortunately, without tragedies, yes. there's nothing to record. Del Nazabadi is the director of The Secret Fatwa. It's one of the opening night films at the Peace on Earth Film Festival. It's showing on March 9th, and Del Naz will be here for a question and answer with me after the film, and we'll talk about this. Ahmed Sadri might be there as well. And it's been great talking with you, Del Nazabadi. Congratulations on the film, and we look forward to seeing you at the Peace on Earth Film Festival on March 9th. Thank you very much. Ahmad Sandri is a professor of sociology at Lake Forest College. Thanks a lot for joining us again, Ahmad, and talking about your situation and the situation facing Iran. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks again to Nick Angadi with the Peace on Earth Film Festival. Good to see you, Nick. Good seeing you, Jerome. Thank you. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to talk about refugees from Sudan and Eritrea and Israel. They've been told they have 60 days to get on a plane or go to jail, and we'll hear about their situation. We're also going to hear about scholars working on an anti-colonial guidebook to Hawaii. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Don't forget, you can podcast this program anytime you like. Go to our website, wbez.org slash worldview, or wherever you get your podcasts, sign up for the Worldview podcast. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering, and thanks to Daniel Musisi for curating our music. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.